Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, November 8th, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we're going to present part 18 of our commentary on Martin Luther's, on the Jews and their lives. In our last segment of this presentation, we concluded part 10 of Luther's lengthy essay. There are 13 parts in total. There are three left. In part 10, we saw Luther transform his arguments away from a technical refutation of Jewish claims concerning Christ the Messiah, which were based on promises of the Old Testament, which Luther believed to relate to the Messiah, and he upheld Christian claims concerning the same. And then Luther moved towards a rebuttal of certain assertions and practices of the Jews in his own time. Among these were discussion of the so-called ineffable name. The Jews had persuaded men such as Luther that by referring to this so-called, as they call it, Shem Ham Forest, that they were referring to the Tetragrammaton. And Luther understood and properly criticized Jewish claims that the Tetragrammaton was some sort of magical incantation, useful in spells. However, we must also note that Luther, admitting that the Tetragrammaton was indeed the representative name of God presented in the Old Testament, saw no need to employ it himself. From the pages of Flavius Josephus, however, we saw that the Tetragrammaton was not ineffable at all. The word ineffable and the idea of the so-called Shemham forest suggests that the name cannot be known. However, Josephus clearly indicates that it was known, but its use was prohibited at a time relatively recent to his own. Now, perhaps Luther was unsuspecting of this, that the Shemham forest really does not relate to the Tetragrammaton. Although the Jews seem to use this story for a cover, or this belief for a cover, this perception, and for a reason of their own prohibition of its use. Of course, Jews cannot preclude non-Jews from using the name behind the Tetragrammaton. In reality... The phrase Shemham Forest really refers to the insane Jewish ideas which are found in the Kabbalah, from which they claim that the name of God, depending upon which perverted rabbi that you may want to listen to, consists of 12 or 22 or 42 or even perhaps 72 characters. Luther not mentioning that, was evidently unaware of the Jewish Kabbalistic mechanizations and, and their, um, their real surmisings 
concerning the ineffable name which they see in their Kabbalah, which is just Jewish garbage. Luther went so far as to write an essay on this topic, believing the ineffable name to refer to the Tetragrammaton, of the unknowable name of God and the generations of Christ. Luther did explain how the Jews corrupt the names for God and Christ, which are employed by Christians, implying perverse meanings in variations of the words so that they can mock and curse Christians even during their discussions with them, and Christians not understanding the nuances of Hebrew remain unsuspecting, thinking that the Jews are blessing them, when in fact the Jews are cursing them instead. And Luther was pretty much on the money in those respects. Luther went on to describe how the Jews curse Christ, curse his earthly mother, which really shows their true, their disgusting true nature. And they ex he explained how impious, profane, and evil it is to curse, for the Jews to curse and lie about the mother of Christ, regardless of how they feel about Christ himself, that that truly exposes their nature, their evil, wicked nature. This was an excellent observation on Luther's part because it reveals the truly insolent and blasphemous tendencies of Jews, even towards people whom they claim to be their own. Of course, Luther mistakenly thought that both Mary and Christ did belong to the Jews, since he mistakenly thought that the Jews were Israel. As we had already noted, Luther's diatribes against the nature and the spirit of the Jews are much more valuable than his religious arguments, even those religious arguments would have, which have validity. Luther then proceeded to illuminate the crimes against humanity that the Jews were so often accused of having perpetrated in Europe. He said that they have been bloodthirsty bloodhounds and murderers of all Christendom for more than 1,400 years in their intentions and would undoubtedly prefer to be such with their deeds. And he admitted that they had been accused of such things throughout medieval history, such things as poisoning water, and poisoning wells, and of kidnapping Christian children and brutally murdering them in ritual fashion. And we should probably do a program or two on that one day in the near future, on Jewish ritual murder in medieval Europe. Because many of those claims do certainly have merit. Luther discussed how Jews killed Christians by posing as physicians and poisoning Christians. Near the end of the chapter, chapter 10 of On the Jews and Their Lies, Luther reached an inevitable conclusion where he said, so we are even at fault 
in not avenging all this innocent blood of our Lord and of the Christians, which they shed for 300 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. And the blood of the children they have shed since then, referring to the Jewish ritual murder practices, which they were um, caught up in accusations of very often in medieval European history. And Luther says that that blood of the children still shines forth from their eyes and their skin. Here in this 18th segment of our presentation of Luther's paper, we shall present part 11 of this essay, where a leading figure of the Protestant Reformation in Germany tells us what he thought should be done about the Jews. It is highly unfortunate that the so-called church, which bears his name, did not adopt his advice as policy. They certainly should have. Part 11 of On the Jews and Their Lies with comments. What shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? Since they live among us, we dare not tolerate their conduct. Now that we are aware of their lying and reviling and blaspheming, if we do, we become sharers in their lives, cursing and blasphemy. And Luther once again refers to 1 Timothy 5.22, where Paul advised the young apostle to lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. And Luther says, thus we cannot extinguish the unquenchable fire of divine wrath of which the prophets speak, nor can we convert the Jews. With prayer and the fear of God, we must practice a sharp mercy to see whether we might save at least a few from the glowing flames. So even with all of his recognition of their their wicked character, their treachery, their absolute dishonesty, their lies, their blasphemies. Luther still has empathy for these satanic bastards. Imagine that. He says, we dare not avenge ourselves. Vengeance a thousand times worse than we could wish them already has them by the throat. I shall give you my sincere advice. And Luther is going to proceed with what he felt should be done about the Jews in the 16th century in Europe, in Germany anyway. Paul of Tarsus, quoting Old Testament scripture, wrote in Hebrews chapter 10, For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongs to me. I will recompense, saith Yahweh. And again, Yahweh shall judge his people. Vengeance and judgment belong to God. However, as we have 
been elucidating throughout this presentation, Luther himself was quite accused as to whom Yahweh would execute vengeance and upon whom Yahweh would impart mercy. The Jews being Edomites, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 9, are vessels of destruction and not vessels of mercy. It befuddles me that Luther didn't read Romans chapter 9 and figure that out. That not all of those in Israel are of Israel. That only... Um, that can only stand as a tribute to the divine providence of God that he opens the eyes of the blind when he sees fit to open them. Luther did not see that the Jews were actually Israelites, and he could not see it. In any event, Luther came to the understanding that the Jews were characteristically evil, and it's something had to be done about them in order to remove their undue influence upon Christian society. While Luther's recommendations were certainly moving in the right direction, they were never acted upon, and 250 years later, the Jews were in control of Europe. Actually, they were acted upon to a degree, not in their entirety by the National Socialists in Germany starting in 1940, perhaps, 1939. But not even to the extent that Luther had advised. And Luther says first, what Luther says we should do about the Jews. First, to set fire to their synagogues or schools and bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn so that no man will ever again see a stone or cinder of them. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom so that God might see that we are Christians and do not condone or knowingly tolerate such public lying, cursing, and blaspheming of his son and of his Christians. For whatever we tolerated in the past unknowingly, and I myself was unaware of it, it took Luther's entire career dealing with Jews, confronting Jews, to become aware of the nature of the Jews. And I myself was unaware of it, we will be pardoned by God for, for whatever we tolerated in the past unknowingly. But if we, now that we are informed, were to protect and shield such a house for the Jews existing right before our very nose, in which they lie about, blaspheme, curse, vilify, and defame Christ and us, as was heard above, and in the prior chapters, Luther laid out all of these things that the Jews did. It would be the same as if we were doing all of this and even worse ourselves, as we very well know. And here we must ask, could Luther have been 
ignorant of the proceedings of the disputation of Paris, which was about 300 years before his own time. At the disputation of Paris, many of the blasphemies against both Christ and Christians, which are found in the rabbinical writings espoused by Jews everywhere, were exposed. Could Luther have really been ignorant? I guess he was, because he shows no sign of, of really knowing anything in depth about what had happened 300 years before his own time. Even though Luther was a very well-read, educated, educated man. Luther writes as if, as if the treachery of Jews against Christians were new to Germans upon the publication of his own revelations. When he speaks about the um, treachery of Jews in the past, he goes all the way back to the first 300 years of Christendom, where it is entirely evident, and I've cited them often, from the writings of Christian apologists such as Tertullian and Minucius Felix, that the Jews were indeed responsible for the Roman persecution of Christians, that the Jews instigated those persecutions. is very clear in the writings of those gentlemen and others, and Luther certainly knows about that. But he doesn't seem to be aware, because he doesn't mention it, the expose of um, Talmudic writings concerning Christ and Christians found and exposed in the Disputation of Paris 300 years before his own time. Luther writes, as if this treachery of Jews against Christians were new to Germans upon his, his own revelations and their publication. But actually, at least many of the things which he has said about the Jews here had been known for centuries. Luther continues, in Deuteronomy 13.12, Moses writes that any city that is given to idolatry shall be totally destroyed by fire, and nothing of it shall be preserved. If he, meaning Moses, if he were alive today, he would be the first to set fire to the synagogues and houses of the Jews. For in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, and 12, verse 32, he commanded very explicitly that nothing is to be added or to be subtracted from his law. And Samuel says, in 1 Samuel 15, 23, that disobedience to God is idolatry. I'll interject that Samuel was speaking to Saul, but the words which Samuel spoke to Saul are universally applicable, where he said, for rebellion, rebellion against God, is as the sin of witchcraft, sorcery, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry, being stubborn to follow the word of God. Disobedience to God is idolatry because it comes with the, the necessary premise that 
the disobedient man is his own God or he is following some other God because he refuses to follow Yahweh. Luther continues, Now the Jews' doctrine at present is nothing but the additions of the rabbis and the idolatry of disobedience, so that Moses has become entirely unknown among them, as we have said before. Just as the Bible became unknown under the papacy in our day, so also for Moses' sake, their schools cannot be tolerated. They defame him just as much as they do us. It is not necessary that they had their own free churches, meaning the synagogues, for such idolatry. Let's read from Deuteronomy chapter 13. If thou shalt hear say in one of thy cities, which Yahweh thy God has given thee to dwell there, saying, Certain men, the children of Belial, are gone out from among you and, and have withdrawn the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known. Then shalt thou inquire and make search and ask diligently, and behold, if it be truth, and the thing be certain, that such abomination is wrought among you, thou shalt surely smite the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, destroying it utterly, and all that is therein, and the cattle thereof with the edge of the sword. So we see a commandment in Deuteronomy that the children of Israel were to destroy any idolatry in their own cities. If they failed to do that, then they would suffer the destruction of their entire city at the hands of the rest of the children of Israel. That was the law. Of course, it was hardly practiced. In Luther's mind, denying Christ is a denial of God. Denying Christ is disobedience to God. Therefore, denying Christ is idolatry. And the Jews in their schools were practicing systematized idolatry. In this regard, Luther was absolutely correct. Christian nations should have never allowed either Jews or Muslims or anyone else, anybody of a foreign god, to remain within their borders. And the Jews certainly do not worship the God of the Bible. Luther says, second, after he advises the destruction, the burning and complete annihilation of all the Jewish synagogues and schools, he says, second, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed, for they pursue in them the same aims as in their synagogues. Instead, they might be lodged under a roof or in a barn like the gypsies. This will bring home to them the fact that they are not masters in our country as they boast, but that they are living in exile and in captivity, and they incessantly wail and lament about us before God. So we see in Luther's day 
300 years before Wilhelm Marr, who we will get to shortly, and 400 years before Adolf Hitler, that the Jews were boasting that they were the masters of Germany. While there was no emancipation of the Jews, after which the Jews publicly received the right to participate as citizens in society until the middle of the 19th century in Germany, after the time of Napoleon in France, Austria, and other places. Nevertheless, the Jews must have had a great deal of influence behind the scenes in order to make such a boast in Luther's time. Luther evidently came to realize that the Jews were alien invaders and crypto-conquerors of Christian society. And Luther sought the means to defend Christendom from the inevitable result. Commenting, commenting upon what he perceived as the war which the Jews were making against Christendom, 300 years after Luther, the German journalist, Wilhelm Marr, understood the degree of Jewish control over Germany in his time. He's writing around 1870, 1872, when he wrote in conclusion to his own realization that the twilight of the gods has come upon us. You, speaking to the Jews, you are the masters. We are the slaves. What is there left to us? Mar had written in a very dark mood. Mar had written the following in connection with the Jewish struggle for political emancipation, which happened in Germany, I believe, in 1848. It would be easy to hide our own impotence under cover of an abundant verbiage of Jewish hatred. We Germans have officially resigned in favor of Judaism in 1848. Wilhelm Marr thought it was over for Germany and that Jews won the war and controlled Germany in 1848. And he says, check for yourself. In all aspects of life, the way to one's goal is subject to Jewish mediation. There is no struggle, struggle for existence without Jewry collecting its commission. Ask yourself, reader, whether I exaggerate. This is the result of the Thirty Years' War, which Jewry has officially staged against us since 1848, and which does not even offer us the hope for a poor Westphalian peace. And, and by the term Westphalian peace and, and, and the Thirty Years' War, which it the Jews struggled for at least three decades in Germany before the Germans finally caved in and gave them that emancipation they were looking for 
it didn't happen overnight. It happened earlier in France. It happened even earlier in Austria-Hungary and, and certain other places. It happened 500 years earlier in Poland, which embraced the Jews back in the 14th century. But it took the Jews over 30 years to struggle and achieve emancipation in Germany. And that's what Marr is referring to as the Jews' 30 years war against the Germans. And, and that's a a sarcastic pun on the real 30 years war of the 17th century. And, and that real 30 years war of the 17th century ended in, in a treaty at Westphalia, which is near the Rhineland in Germany. The, um, I don't know if Luther or, well, well, Luther was dead. I'm sorry. He, he, the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century, I don't know if Wilhelm Marr actually understood that the Jews were behind that too. The Jesuits were heavily infested with Jews, and, and the Jesuits were behind the Thirty Years' War, which wiped out half of Germany in the 17th century. In the 16th century here, we see that Martin Luther understood and knew that the Jews had bragged about being the masters of Germany. In the 19th century, Wilhelm Marr, a journalist, decided that it was a fact. The Jews were indeed masters of Germany. I don't know if any Jews at all between Martin Luther and Wilhelm Marr had figured that out or made that admission. In the 20th century, Adolf Hitler, finally, attempted a solution to the Jews being masters of Germany. He, from what I see, <laughs> was the first to actually try to implement Martin Luther's advice. Christians today do not believe any of these men. And now the Antichrist Jews are masters of the whole world, and Christians remain in abject denial. How is Revelation chapter 20 not fulfilled in this? Satan has indeed already gone out and deceived the entire world. Luther continues after advising us that all of the schools synagogues, houses of the Jews should all be razed to the ground and totally obliter obliterated so that the Jews can go and live in the forest like the ogres that they really are, or in barns. Then Luther says, third, I advise that all their prayer books and Talmudic writings in which such idolatry, as disobedience to God, of course, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught, be taken from them. Luther was not the first Christian to advise these things. There had been Tal Talmud burnings in France 300 years prior. In 1240 A.D., 
one of medieval Europe's earliest recorded self-hating Jews. And we've seen Luther quote from crypto-Jews throughout this paper on the Jews and their lives. Well, it was another crypto-Jew, Luther, evidently, or at least we have not seen yet, quote from. His name was Nicholas Donin, D-O-N-I-N is the way it's usually spelled. This self-hating Jew had reported to officials in France that the Talmud contained blasphemies against Christ. He also was a, um, this self-hating Jew was a monk. He was a Franciscan monk, a converso Jew, and became influential among Christians. He had an influential role even with the Pope by 1239 A.D., the stories, the accounts of this era are, are difficult to unwind without original sources because they are very often confused. But the facts are the facts, and, and they're pretty widely known. Donnan reported to officials in France that the Talmud contained blasphemies against Christ. If this episode is reported correctly, It reveals just how ignorant European Christians had been of the Talmud for so long that they, the way this is reported, that they didn't know of the treachery and blasphemy in the Talmud until 1240 AD. If that's true, that European Christians were ignorant of these things for so long, In concert with that, we see just how effective Jewish secrecy in relation to their true nature had also been. At this time, it is said that Jews were forced in France to surrender all of their copies of the Talmud so that the charge could be investigated. This culminated in an event called the Disputation of Paris. And the disputation of Paris resulted in an order being issued by the king of France, Louis IX, that all copies of the Talmud be confiscated and burned. Donin, one of those medieval converso Jews who had be becoming a Franciscan monk became rather influential among Christians, had an active role in the disputation. While I could only find some of, these, some of these statements in Jewish sources, and therefore I would not accept them as definite facts so quickly, it is reported that as a result, 24 cartloads of Jewish books were burned by the French in 1242 A.D., some sources state a more precise number of books claiming that 12,000 Talmudic manuscripts had been burned. Furthermore, some sources state that an additional burning of Talmuds occurred in 1244 AD. Of course, the wicked Talmud being 
quite as voluminous as a modern encyclopedia, each copy would, in all likelihood, consist of many dozens, if not hundreds, of manuscripts. Some sources state that under the influence of this converso Nicholas Donin, Pope Gregory IX had ordered burnings of the Talmud as early as 1239 A.D. Gregory had indeed already begun the Papal Inquisition. This is where it started. To exterminate what the Catholics saw as heresies, not only of the Jews, but also mostly of Protestants in France and Spain. And, and it was this Pope Gregory IX who first, uh, under whose um, rule, if I have to call it that, the um, Bibles were, were first forbidden to Christians. This is when the Bible became forbidden because of the fear of heresies. Luther um, has already made references to the Bible in his time, being forbidden to the people. There were further burnings of the Talmud in the centuries which followed, in Italy, in Poland, and elsewhere. After 1242, the popes continued to advocate burning the Talmud. But apparently the Talmud was not burned again on any large scale until another order was issued by Pope Julius III in 1552, at a bonfire in Rome, which is several years after Luther wrote this treatise, nine years. That bonfire in Rome was then followed by many others in Italy that resulted from the Inquisition begun by Julius. Supposedly in Venice alone, only over a thousand copies of the Talmud and other Jewish books were burned. Later on, in Poland, and this is an interesting story we should actually, well, we should actually get into one day. We should actually present here one day. In Poland, in 1757, and this is the most recent Talmud burning I could find, 1,000 copies of the Talmud were evidently put into a pit and burned, following a disputation between Jews and a group called the Frankists, after a Jew named Frank, his last name, Jacob Frank, I believe. The Frankists were said to have played a leading role in hunting down copies of the Talmud for incineration. The Frankists, who, who were sort of in an early Jews for Jesus movement, as if there could be such a thing. The Frankists in Poland are a story unto themselves because they were many hundreds of Jews, as many as 500, who under pretense in the 18th century had converted to Catholicism and took to flattering members of the Polish nobility as their godparents. This sounds like a real Jew scheme. And after they flattered 
members of the Polish nobility as their godparents for their baptism, they began to successfully mingle with and intermarry the same Polish nobility. And they are also said to have had a large presence among the Czechs in Bohemia. So you want to wonder about the, the treachery of the Poles in, in, this, in the ensuing centuries. Well, this might be one explanation for it. The history of the Frankists in Poland, like the history of the Murano Jews of Spain, is a good example of the folly of attempting to convert the Jews. They can never be sincere Christians. They can only be wolves posing as sheep, who upon infiltrating Christian society under the guise of any religion, only turn that society into a modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah. The washed sow always returns to wallowing in the mire. That's a digression. The Frankists are on. well out of Martin Luther's scope, but my point was to demonstrate that Luther did not suggest the first Talmud burning. That started back in 1240 A.D., about 300 years before Martin Luther wrote this essay. He says, Fourth, I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of life and land. Teach and die. That sounds good for a rabbi. For they have justly forfeited the right to such an office by holding the poor Jews captive. Luther has far too much empathy for the Jews and blames it all on their leaders, teachers, rabbis. He, he, I, I don't know how he doesn't understand it. Um, a race that produces such treacherous people generation after generation after generation doesn't have a, a problem much deeper than simply the rabbis. It's that, um, I think what leads to the blindness about Jews is the occasional quote-unquote good Jew that, that tells on the other Jews and, and, and um, goes and sides with the Christians. And of course, we've seen throughout this essay on the Jews and their lies from the quotes and, and, and the... the, the um, teachings of Lyra and Bergensis, which are reflected by Martin Luther, that these conversal Jews convert to Christianity and, and, and they just corrupt Christianity. They corrupt Christian teachings. They pervert Christian teachings. Jews are not good for Christianity. They uphold the lies concerning Jewish identity and teach those lies to Christians as truths, Luther swallowed it all, hook, line, and sinker. But they're evil. Jewish treachery, evil, and character are congenital. They are devils. They may not be a race in the sense of a pure bloodline. Bloodline, they certainly are not. They've mixed with every other race. 
but they are a breed. I wouldn't even call it a breed. I would simply consider being Jewish an inherited birth defect. Fourth, I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of life and land, for they have justly forfeited the right to such an office by holding the poor Jews captive with the saying of Moses, quoting Deuteronomy 17.10, in which he commands them to obey their teachers on penalty of death, although Moses clearly adds what they teach you in accord with the law of the Lord. Those villains ignore that. They wantonly employ the poor people's obedience contrary to the law of the Lord and infuse them with this poison, cursing and blasphemy. In the same way, the Pope also held us captive with the declaration in Matthew 16:18, you are Peter, etc., in inducing us to believe all the lies and deceptions that issued from his devilish mind. He did not teach in accord with the word of God, and therefore he forfeited the right to teach. And of course, Luther's referring to the abuse by which the Catholic Church treats the statement of Christ, you are a petros, meaning a stone, but upon this and upon this bedrock, Petra, I will build my, my church. Well, Christ was saying that he was going to build his church upon a solid bedrock, but Peter was only a stone. There have always been men who would assume certain sayings in the scriptures in order to somehow assert authority over others. Luther did well to reject the premise. However, in both cases, relating to the rabbis and to the pope, the scriptures in question are taken out of context in order to support the pretense of authority. Rabbis, or any other idolaters, should certainly be prohibited from any pretense of teaching or from any pretense of religious authority in any Christian nation. Christians should piss all over the, the, the supposed religious authorities of those of other religions because they're not authorities. Nobody gets to the Father except through Christ. So Christians should never have any respect for a rabbi as a teacher or an imam or whatever those filthy sand niggers call their priests. When the children of Israel had strangers among them, the strangers were compelled to follow the laws of Israel. This was not for the benefit of the strangers, but it was for the benefit of the Israelites that they not be led astray by the observations of anyone not keeping the law. Perfect example is the Sabbath. If you and your whole nation are required to keep the Sabbath by the law of God, and you let these clowns in that want to have a circus on the Sabbath day, and, and they're trying to attract people to the circus to break the Sabbath, well, then you throw the damn clowns out of the country. 
you, you can't keep, you can't allow people who violate your laws to be in your country. And, and, and Christians, well, it's way too late to learn this lesson, but we should never let Muslims into Christian nations or Jews or anybody else from any other religion. Now, as Paul said in Romans, the things written in the Old Testament are for the learning of Christians. Yeah, you know, this is another thing that really, that really befuddles me, and, and that's the, uh, the Christian attitude to the statement in Romans chapter 3 where Paul asks, what advantage has the Judean that unto them have been left the oracles of God? Well, just because the Judeans were left the sayings in the scriptures of Yahweh, God, that doesn't mean that Christians didn't have a copy too. That's ridiculous. Of course Christians had a copy too. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 15 that the things that were written, meaning the things in the Old Testament, were for our learning, for the learning of Christians. Yet, to their detriment, Christians never implemented any such things. As to the law and, and the biblical commandment that we should have one law for everybody in our nation, that we shouldn't respect these laws of other people, it says in Exodus twelve forty nine, one law shall be to him that is homeborn and unto the stranger, the gare, the guest, that sojourns among you, enforcement of the law in Christian nations would, would have kept the Jews out permanently because they cannot deal with that. That alone would exclude the Jews from our company. Fifth, I advise that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for Jews. The Jews traveled with special privileges under the protection of the kings or the princes. For they have no business in the countryside, since they are not lords, officials, tradesmen, or the like. At that time, the Jews could not hold property. They could not be landlords. Let them stay at home. I have heard it said that a rich Jew is now traveling across the country with 12 horses. His ambition is to become a kakba, a, a reference to Simon bar Kokhba, devouring princes, lords, lands, and people with his usury, so that the great lords view it with jealous eyes. If you great lords, and, and Luther's referring to the, the landlords, the, the lords of manors, dukes, counts, princes, if you great lords and princes will not forbid such usurers the highway legally, someday a troop may gather against them, having learned from this booklet the true nature of the Jews and how one should deal with them and not protect their activities. For you too must not and cannot protect them unless you wish to become participants in all their abominations in the sight of God. 
consider carefully what good could come from this and prevent it. And here Luther is being very daring because he's actually challenging the nobles of Germany that if they do not keep the Jews off the road, then after his book gets distributed throughout the Christian churches of Germany, he's hoping that people that read it Go hit the highways and hang the Jews. Here, once again, Luther is biblically correct. The man who protects the sinner becomes a partner in the sins of the sinner. Paul explains this to some degree in Romans chapter 1, that if you approve of these homosexuals, these, these perverts, these sodomites, and, and, and people who commit like sins, that you become as guilty for their sin as they are. And since the Jews did not work at any honest living, the only reason they have for roaming the countryside is to pander, seeking whom they could take advantage of and spoil. As Peter said in his first epistle, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Peter's not talking about some clown dressed up with horns and a, and a pitchfork. Peter's talking about the Jews that roam the countryside and the cities trying to entrap men in gambling, in prostitution, in, in any other vice, in usury, loan sharking, any other vice that they could entrap you with so that they could enslave you, seeking whom they may devour. Six. I advise that usury be prohibited to them and that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them and put aside for safekeeping. And we will see that Luther is not the first Christian in Europe to advise that. The reason for such a measure is that, as said above, they have no other means of earning a livelihood than usury, and by it they have stolen and robbed from us all they possess. Such money should now be used in no other way than the following. Whenever a, here he goes again, right? Whenever a Jew is sincerely converted, he should be handed 100, 200, or 300 florins, as personal circumstances may suggest. So, so Jews would get all their money taken away, but then they get financial rewards for converting. Every Jew would be a Christian, and we'd all end up devils. We'd all end up worse than we started. Luther didn't understand that. Luther did not understand that the treachery and evil character of the Jews was genetic. It was in their blood. He didn't get that. With this, he, the Jew that converts and gets a financial reward, with this he could set himself up in some occupation for the support of his poor wife and children and the maintenance of the old or feeble. For such evil gains are cursed that they are not put to use with God's blessing in a good and worthy cause. And, and of course, in hindsight, we know that 
the Jews can't possibly engage in a good and worthy cause. And if they do, it's for treacherous purposes. Wilhelm Marr wrote that all the nations of antiquity, including the trading Phoenicians, who he didn't understand were Israelites, and the Carthaginians, did not think well of engaging in what we now call agiotage. A-G-I-O-T-A-G-E. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but I'll try. Profiteering and usury. If in the Middle Ages we encounter a Mr. Moneybag, he was a Jew. This is Wilhelm Marr. Jews were made use of but despised. They were made use of by the kings so that they could drive commerce. And the kings did that. Charlemagne, from the days of Charlemagne, the kings did that. This attitude is similar to its modern form, in which traders are met with contempt while their treason make may be welcome. Now, by agiotage, Mar referred to currency and stock exchange speculation and trading, as well as usury-based capitalism, which stock exchange speculation and trading is basically the basis for industrial capitalism. Marr further stated that the opposition against usury is the first popular expression of the coming clash. Now, we have quoted Marr, Wilhelm Marr, and how he and, and his realizations in the 19th century correspond very well to Martin Luther's in the 16th century. We've quoted him in the past here in this series and also noted that he saw a coming clash, writing in 1872, between Jews and Germans. And the clash he foresaw did not materialize until the rise of Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler is the personification of the coming clash between Jews and Christians that Wilhelm Marr understood was inevitable in 1872. Adolf Hitler also despised usury. And Adolf Hitler learned of the mechanizations of usury within Jewish stock exchange capitalism from a German economist who was lecturing in the early 20th century. In Book 1, Chapter 8 of Mein Kampf, Hitler says, When I heard Gottfried Fetter's first lecture on the abolition of the interest servitude Better was a German economist who understood that usury had to be abolished, and Hitler learned and founded National Socialist Germany on an interest-free currency based on Gottfried Fetter. When I heard Gottfried Fetter's first lecture on the abolition of the interest servitude, I understood immediately that here was a truth of transcendental importance for the future of the German people. 
the absolute separation of stock exchange capital from the economic life of the nation would make it possible to oppose the process of internationalization in German business without at the same time attacking capital as such. Hitler believed in private property rights, but he knew that the usury part of the equation was evil and understood that they could be separated. And that was what Gottfried Fetter was, what was in part teaching. I clearly saw, uh, I'm sorry, the absolute separation of stock exchange capital from the economic life of the nation would make it, make it possible to oppose the process of internationalization in German business without at the same time attacking capital as such, for to do this would jeopardize the foundations of our national independence. I clearly saw what was developing in Germany, and I realized then that the swiftest fight we would have to wage would not be against the enemy nations, but against international capital. In Fetter's speech, I found an effective rallying cry for our coming struggle. But long before, long before Hitler's time, and even long before the time of Martin Luther, we have just seen, quantified, three, three intelligent German men, Martin Luther, Wilhelm Marr and Adolf Hitler all expressed the understanding that usury was evil and that usury was the, the reason for the Jewish ascension to control of Germany and, and Europe itself. Long before Hitler's time, long before the time of Martin Luther, the Catholic priest, Thomas Aquinas, had advised Margaret of Flanders in 1271 A.D. that the Jews of your land seemed to have nothing except what they acquired through the depravity of usury. And hence, consequently, you ask whether it is not licit to require something from them, and to whom the things thus required are to be restored. On this matter, therefore, it seems the response should be this. Since the Jews may not licitly keep those things which they have extorted from others through usury, the consequence is also that if you receive these things from them, neither may you licitly keep them, unless perhaps they be things that the Jews had extorted from you or from your ancestors hitherto. If, however, they have things which they extorted from others, these things once demanded from them, you should restore to those whom the Jews were bound to restore them. Thus, if certain persons are discovered from whom the Jews extorted usury, it should be restored to them. St. Thomas Aquinas, basically preaching a jubilee 
to take everything away from the Jews and return it to the people they extorted it from because, as he was teaching, the Jews should not be allowed to keep the things that they've gained through usury, and those things are everything the damn Jews have. And Martin Luther was teaching the same thing. And these were certainly Christian men. Adolf Hitler was on the same page as them in response to those same things. So the real struggle with the Jews, aside from the genetic character, the real day-to-day struggle with the Jews is over usury and the acceptance of usury, which allows the parasitical Jew to thrive by feeding freely off of a Christian society. We see the friction caused by usury, by the usury issue with Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, Wilhelm Marr, and Adolf Hitler. That is over eight centuries of Christian European history. The usurers have been allowed to continue, and the inevitable result, Europe is no longer Christian. And neither is any other nation in this world. Back to Luther. But when they boast that Moses allowed or commanded them to exact usury from strangers, citing Deuteronomy 23.20, apart from this, they cannot adduce as much as a letter in their support. We must tell them that there are two classes of Jews or Israelites. The first comprises those whom Moses, in compliance with God's command, led from Egypt into the land of Canaan. To them he issued his law, which they were to keep in that country and not beyond it. This is a um, a rather subjective argument on behalf of Luther which they were to keep in that country and not beyond it, and then only until the advent of the Messiah. The other Jews are those of the emperor and not of Moses. These date back to the time of Pilate, the procurator of the land of Judah. For when the later asked them before the judgment seat, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, crucify him, crucify him. He said to them, Shall I crucify your king? They shouted in reply, We have no king but Caesar. God had not commanded of them such submission to the emperor. They gave it voluntarily. So Luther saying that they forfeited any claim to the laws of the ancient kingdom because... They themselves had turned their allegiance over to Caesar. So they cannot cite Deuteronomy chapter 23 in reference to themselves and their practice of usury. Luther is close to the issue at hand here. From Deuteronomy chapter 23, from verse 19, it says, speaking to Israelites, of course, and not to Jews, Thou shalt not lend upon usury to thy brother, 
usury of money, usury of victuals, usury of anything that is lent upon usury. Unto a stranger thou mayest lend upon usury, but unto thy brother thou shalt not lend upon usury. That Yahweh thy God may bless thee in all that thou hast settest thine hand to in the land whither thou goest to possess it. Now, in reality, the law is not talking about Jews because the Israelites were not Jews and the Jews are certainly not Israelites. However, even if the Jews were Israel, lending it usury to non-Jews, they would come to control the land of non-Jews. Would that not be sufficient warning to Christians? As soon as they allowed the Jews to practice usury in Europe, the Jews would naturally come to be the masters of Europe. So misinterpreting this passage as if it referred to the Jews, nevertheless, the Europeans should have known not to let the Jews practice usury. In truth, if, as Paul says, the things which were written were written for the example of Christians, which we see in Romans chapter 15, then Christians would never exact usury from other Christians. And Christians would not allow non-Christians to lend it usury in Christian lands. Rather, the Jews would not be allowed to lend and would be forced to borrow from Christians at usury. That's the way the law should work. However, Luther is on to something else here as well. In spite of the fact that his fumbling about the identity of the Jews is so very evident, he distinguishes between Moses's Israelites or Jews, as he calls them, confounding the two terms, which should not be confounded, and the Jews who are those of the emperor and not of Moses. These date back to the time of Pilate. So he makes that distinguishment. Well, of course, there were really no Jews of Moses' time. Luther both takes it for granted that the Israelites are somehow Jews. And he notes a distinction between the people of Moses and Pilate's Jews. Luther is in conflict with himself. He's like starting to become awake, but he can't quite get there. <coughs> Earlier in this essay, in part four, Luther remarked about false bastards and strange Jews. Here and earlier, he realizes that these Jews are not really the people of Moses. The pieces he was missing are all in history and scripture, which show that the Jews of today are indeed false Jews because they are Canaanites and Edomites and are not true Israelites at all. Luther just couldn't see it, but Luther did want to distinguish he did recognize that there had to be a difference between the people he knew as Jews and the Israelites of the Old Testament. He just didn't have the eyes to put his finger on it. Continuing with 
Martin Luther. But when the emperor demanded the obedience due him, a reference back to the time of Pilate, they resisted and rebelled against him. Now they no longer wanted to be his subjects. After they had exclaimed, we have no king but Caesar, Luther speaking about the several uprisings of the Jews against Rome, 70 AD, and later on with the Bar Kokhba rebellion. Then he came and visited his subjects, gathered them in Jerusalem, and scattered them throughout his entire empire so that they were forced to obey him talking about the results of those Jewish rebellions. And Luther says, From these, the present remnant of Jews descended, of whom Moses knows nothing, nor they of him. For they do not deserve a single passage or verse of Moses. And this is true, but Luther did not know why it is true, or he simply would not have said what he's about to say where he wrote, if they wish to apply Moses' law again, they must first return to the land of Canaan, become Moses' Jews, and keep his laws, that there they may practice usury as much as strangers will endure them. But since they are dwelling in and disobeying Moses in foreign countries under the emperor, they are bound to keep the emperor's laws and refrain from the practice of usury until they become obedient to Moses. For Moses' law has never passed a single step beyond the land of Canaan or beyond the people of Israel. And Luther speaks this in ignorance, not knowing the children of Israel in their dispersions. Moses was not sent to the Egyptians, the Babylonians, or any other nation with his law, but only to the people whom he led from Egypt into the land of Canaan. As he himself testifies frequently in Deuteronomy, they were expected to keep his commandments in the land which they would conquer beyond the Jordan. Those people, the ancestors of the Europeans, as Paul attests in Romans chapter 4, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, those people of Moses are Europeans and not Jews. Luther was blind to that fact. Moreover, since priesthood worshiped government, with which the greater part, indeed almost all of those laws of Moses deal with, have been at the end, at an end for over 1,400 years already. It is certain that Moses' law also came to an end and lost its authority. Therefore, the imperial laws must be applied to these imperial Jews. Their wish to be Mosaic Jews must not be indulged. In fact, no Jew has been that for over 1,400 years. As we have cited, the Bible attests that there should be one law for Israel and for the sojourners in the land. Therefore, aliens in Christian lands should be forced to comply with the same laws of Christian people. And that would be obedience to Scripture. Luther is making an argument that, that works, but it works for the wrong reasons. The Jews should simply have no power at all to follow their own laws in Christian lands.
point said. There's nothing else to add to that. They just should not have been allowed. It's only due to non-Jewish naivety and Jewish treachery that they even had a chance, a claim that they should be able to follow their own laws in our land, perverting those laws to become parasites and wolves among us. That's crazy. That idea that they would be able to do those things is so obviously destructive of our own nations that that it should be left unsaid that it should not happen. It should not have been allowed to happen. There's other treachery involved there. Luther will touch on it somewhere in this chapter. Seventh, I recommend putting a flail, an axe, a hoe, a spade, a distaff, or a spindle into the hands of young, strong Jews and Jewesses and letting them earn their bread in the sweat of their brow as was imposed on the children of Adam, Genesis 3.19. For it is not fitting that they should let us accursed goyim toil in the sweat of our faces while they, the holy people, idle away their time behind the stove, feasting and farting, and on top of all, boasting blasphemously of their lordship over the Christians by means of our sweat. No one, I'm sorry, no one should toss out these lazy rogues by the seat of their pants. Luther believed in compelling the Jews to work. Forced labor. That's the same thing Adolf Hitler did in Auschwitz. Work shall set you free. Arbeit macht free. Of course, Hitler got accused of waging a holocaust for that. How dare he make the Jews work? From Adolf Hitler, from Mein Kampf, Book 1, Chapter 11. The constructive powers of the Aryan and that peculiar ability he has for the building up of a culture are not grounded in his intellectual gifts alone. If that were so, they might only be destructive and could never have the ability to organize. For the later essentially depends on the readiness of the individual to renounce his own personal opinions and interests and to lay both at the service of the human group following Christ. Lay down your life for your brethren. By serving the common wheel, he receives his reward in return. For example, he does not work directly for himself, but makes his productive work a part of the activity of the group to which he belongs, not only for his own benefit, but for the general benefit. The spirit underlying this attitude is expressed by the word work, which to him does not at all signify a means of earning one's daily livelihood, but rather, and this is an important distinction Hitler makes, 
but rather a productive activity which cannot clash with the interests of the community. Whether, whenever human activity is directed exclusively to the service of the instinct for self-preservation, it is called theft or usury, robbery or burglary, etc. In other words, if you have to work, if you feel that you only have to work to preserve yourself, you're going to stoop to the lowest things to make the most money. But if you work because the Aryan spirit within you takes pride in work and enjoys building nice things, or, or, or producing tangible objects from raw material, or, or, or working in agriculture and seeing the, the fruits of your labor blossom. Something which most Jews have always managed to avoid. Then you work because you have pride in your work and in its contribution to your community. And seeking the kingdom of heaven, your daily bread will be added to you. What you have to wear today or tomorrow will be added to you. Adolf Hitler, Jesus Christ, teaching the same things with different terminology. It's that simple. Real work. And an appreciation for the results of work is something most Jews have always managed to avoid. What Adolf Hitler is saying about real work is something which is lost on most Aryans today because we are Judaized in our minds, thinking that we only have to work to eat. Now none of us want to work. Look at most people today around you. They're, they're 100 pounds overweight, that they ride in little electric carts around Walmart waiting for their next EBT card. Most Aryans have no concept of what Hitler's saying about work, although it was indeed an ages-old ideal. Real work is something we engage in because we love to create. Or in the case of agriculture or husbandry, we love to assist in the process of creation. The Jew creates nothing but panders to the weak so that he may exact increase on the labor of others. That is parasitism. The Jew has created the banking industry, the securities industry, the insurance industry, the entertainment industry. None of these so-called industries have ever actually created a damn thing. They are all merely engaged in parasitism. Today, of course, the Jew has managed to make respectable the vocations of lying, cursing, blaspheming, defaming through their entertainment media, and other entertainment and media and other so-called industries, which have always been their domain to the practical exclusion of whites, unless those whites are useful to their cause. 
They have also made respectable the vocations of stock trader and usurer, money market manipulator, speculator. None of those vocate. None of those are even legitimate vocations. They are actually all thievery disguised as business. That's all they are. Martin Luther says, upon his suggestion that the Jews should be made to work, but if we are afraid that they might harm us or our wives, children, servants, cattle, etc., if they had to serve and work for us, for it is reasonable to assume that such noble lords of the world and venomous, bitter worms are not accustomed to working and would be very reluctant to humble themselves so deeply before the accursed goyim, then let us emulate the common sense of other nations such as France, Spain, Bohemia, etc. Compute with them how much their usury has extorted from us. Divide this amicably, but then eject them from the country forever. For as we have heard, God's anger with them is so intense that gentle mercy will only tend to make them worse and worse, while sharp mercy will reform them but little. Therefore, in any case, away with them. And we've seen Thomas Aquinas recommend to Margaret of Flanders basically that same thing, that she could take all of the money of the Jews, but that she should restore it to the people that the Jews extorted it from. Louis IX of France, back in 1240 A.D., 1240-something A.D., I'll say, 300 years before Luther, he did more than just burn some Talmuds. In order to finance the Seventh Crusade, he ordered the expulsion from France of every Jew who has who was engaged in usury and the confiscation of all their property. That was over 20 years before Thomas Aquinas wrote his letter to Margaret of Flanders that she had every right to confiscate what the Jews had gained through usury in her own domains. Adolf Hitler frequently noted the Jewish disdain for honest labor. And in Book 1, Chapter 4 of Mein Kampf, he wrote, people who can sneak their way like parasites into the human body politic and make others work for them under various pretenses can form a state without possessing any definite delimited territory. This is chiefly applicable to that parasitic nation which, particularly at the present time, preys upon the honest portion of mankind, I mean the Jews. And he expressed the same sentiments in different terms that Martin Luther did, and had the same ideas in different terms 
to resolve that that Martin Luther had. And it's the only resolution. The, well, the only solution is the solution that Hitler really didn't have, and that's the final solution. That's the solution to which Jesus Christ certainly does have. Back to Martin Luther. I hear it said that the Jews donate large sums of money and thus prove beneficial to governments. Yes, but where does this money come from? Not from their own possessions, but from that of the lords and subjects whom they plunder and rob by means of usury. Thus the lords are taking from their subjects what they receive from the Jews. The subjects are obliged to pay additional taxes and let themselves be ground into the dust for the Jews so that they may remain in the country, lie boldly and freely, blaspheme, curse, and steal. Should the impious Jews laugh up their sleeves because we let them make such fools of us and because we spend our money to enable them to remain in the country and to practice every malice? Over and above what we let them get rich on, our blood and sweat, while we remain poor and they suck the marrow from our bones, if it is right for a servant to give his master or for a guest to give his host ten florins annually and in return to steal one thousand florins from him, then the servant or the guest will very quickly and easily get rich referring to the Jews, and the master or the host will soon become a beggar. And Luther's inferring that the Jews have been able to stay in Germany because of the large gifts of money that they provided to governments. But they had stolen that money from the people which those governments ruled over. From Proverbs, chapter 15, verse 26. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to Yahweh, but the words of the pure are pleasant words. He that is greedy of gain troubles his own house, but he that hates gifts shall live. If your house is a kingdom... You don't take gifts from outsiders. They're trying to corrupt you. Likewise, from Proverbs chapter 19, many will entreat the favor of the prince, and every man is a friend to him that gives gifts. That's a perfect description of Martin Luther's Jews and how they were gifting the princes of Germany. And that prince or those princes would become friends to the Jews. There's a movie about that. It's um, posted in probably a lot of places on the Internet. It's called Judsus, the Jewsus, or the sweet Jew, or something like that. And, and it's about that very thing. It's about the way the Jews bribed the princes of Europe so that they could 
feed off of the people and oppress the people and profit greatly. Like Luther said, give ten florins to the government so that you could steal a thousand florins from the subjects. Likewise, from Proverbs chapter 29, from verse 4, the king by judgment establishes the land, but he that receives gifts overthrows it. So by good judgment, a king establishes his kingdom, but a king that receives gifts has his kingdom overthrown. He overthrows his own kingdom by receiving those gifts. Finally, from Isaiah chapter 1, Verse 23, thy princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loveth gifts and followeth after rewards. They judge not the fatherless, neither does the cause of the widow come unto them. When rulers and governments accept gifts, and especially gifts from aliens, they are immediately suspect of corruption. Jews give gifts for one reason, in order to ingratiate and corrupt, so that later they may enslave the recipients. No doubt. We will end this presentation of Martin Luther's on the Jews and their lies here. We won't quite get through this chapter tonight. We've got a few pages left and we will reserve them for next time. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. I will be here Friday night, 1 Corinthians, part 7. Good night. Mm -hmm.